Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm Matt Brown, a host of the channel, and I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history focusing on environment and science. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Keith Plimers about his new book, No Wood, No Kingdom. Political Ecology in the English Atlantic, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021 as a part of the Early Modern America series published in partnership with the USC Huntington Early Modern Studies Institute. Pushing back against the traditional narratives assuming that the American colonies served as resource windfalls which released Europe from the constraints of dwindling resources, No Wood, No Kingdom investigates the political ecology of wood in the English Atlantic through the lens of scarcity. While wood scarcity was a widespread concern, Plimer demonstrates the complexities of resource management by examining England's political ecology alongside the colonial experiences in Ireland, Virginia, and Barbados. Wood scarcity was not a fundamental issue of supply and demand, but a result of social frictions leading to questions such as what separates justifiable exploitation from waste and who should reap the benefits of wood. Whether it is the common people, the state, the manufacturers, or merchants, no wood, no kingdom reveals that competing interests of trade, forestry, and landscape determine diverging answers to these questions. Dr. Keith Plimers, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Matt, and thanks for that very kind introduction to the book. I really appreciate the time you've taken with it. Well, thank you so much, and um, you know, thank you for coming on the show, and and we're looking forward to to the interview today. Um, but before we dive into the 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 insightful book, I was hoping um, you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and and your background. Yeah, thanks so much. So i I started thinking about the environment really seriously and about environmental history really seriously when I was an undergrad at the University of Delaware, where I was working with John Montano, who's been a mentor ever since. And I was there working on an undergraduate thesis on 
cows and on animal husbandry in 17th century Ireland and really trying to think about the ways in which colonialism might have changed the relationship to landscape and actual changes in the land in 17th century Ireland. And after finishing up my bachelor's, I I went on to do a PhD at the University of Southern California, where I worked with Peter Mancall and Cynthia Harrop, who were the advisors on my dissertation. And it was really great working with Cynthia, who's a British historian, and with Peter, who's an Atlantic world and early America historian, because they really helped me to to conceptualize an Atlantic project that took seriously both sides of the ocean. And, And so my view started expanding out from Ireland to thinking about England and and Bermuda and and Virginia, and to start thinking, how are these places linked together? Uh, And I, I wrote a dissertation that looked at landscape really broadly, but as I was doing the research for it, wood kept coming up as as one of the central focuses of land management in a lot of the places that I was looking at, and as a key focus of a lot of the promotional materials for the colonies I was looking at. And so I had, even though I was writing about animals and I was writing about soil and I was writing about water, wood ended up being a key theme in the dissertation and a part of it that I got a really helpful piece of advice from another historian, Carla Pastana, uh, as I was doing a dissertation workshop at the near the end of my PhD. And she said, well, you know, we've got all these things here and that's fine for a dissertation. You should really think about focusing on one for the book and immediately said, okay, I'm going to focus on wood. And so after finishing up my PhD at the University of Southern California, I was the Howard and Suzanne Jessen postdoctoral instructor in the humanities at Caltech, where I taught classes on environmental history and where the book really took shape. And between dissertation and book, I started moving into adding some new case studies to to think about other places and to think about how they connected to the story uh, and to really try to figure out exactly how all the places I was looking at went together. Um, And now, uh, since 2018, I've been an assistant professor of early modern European history at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois. And that's, that's where I finished up the book. So here I teach classes on global environmental history, early modern Europe, uh, the Renaissance, and I work with people in a lot of different departments, everyone from painters to geographers to ag professors to uh, people working at the University Horticulture Center. So I, I really try to take a diverse approach to environmental studies, but to, to ground it in the way I think about the early modern past. That's so great. Thank you for that introduction. And and it's it, it's so interesting to to see um that that transdisciplinary um vibe coming through in the book because I, I, I really think it does. And 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 really before we we get into into the the deep content, would you would you like to do a quick overview of just once you figured out, you know, your your case studies and the subject of wood, how you really negotiated, you know, designing the book or organizing the book and 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 figuring out how you were going to tell the the, the narrative. 
Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so I I knew I was going to focus on wood after I finished with the dissertation and, and had that great conversation that that was the thing that really interested me and that I thought I had the most on. And I had written an article at that point that was under review and then would eventually get accepted uh, in which I was looking at wood scarcity and ironworks and, and putting England, Ireland and Virginia into a conversation with each other and to think about how fears of wood scarcity in England and Ireland ended up shaping an attempt to build an ironworks in Virginia. And so I had at least somewhat of a structure that was coming out of that article, but it was a partial story. And it was a story in which these three places were connected together but I knew that there was a, a wider story as well. And I knew that I wanted to develop the story of England more going from dissertation to book. Uh, so the book starts off by trying to think about the problem as it is conveyed politically in pamphlet literature, in laws, in, in government documents produced at the time. And so I start with this individual, Arthur Standish, who is a figure that, that's really important for the first chapters of the book and who gives the book its title when he warns King James, no wood, no kingdom. And so Standish gives this really dramatic warning saying, if we don't do something about deforestation, there's going to be agricultural collapse, social unrest, and ultimately the destruction of England unless we can do something about wood scarcity. And so this is this dr dramatic call to action, but then I found all of these other contemporaries who were debating either what to do about the problem or debating whether there was a problem at all. And so that led me to think about, okay, how can I try to convey what is actually happening in England? And, and from that, I gave a sense that the problem in England is a problem that not everyone agrees is a problem at multiple levels from tiny localities up to the offices and the officers of the English state. And so once I have sort of that lack of clarity uh, domestically, the question then becomes, well, okay, how do, how do colonies start to fit? And so the Ireland and Virginia work really well because those are places that are in competition with each other and in which ideas about scarcity are going to be used to justify the colonies in a number of ways. And so I look at how that shapes what's happening on the ground in particular colonies. Um, but I also didn't want to stop there because that's not the total story of wood, sort of wood as a bulk commodity. I wanted to think about some other places as well, places where there's sort of more dramatic stories of deforestation like Barbados also places where there's some stories of preservation, like Bermuda, um, but places in which there are vibrant trades in wood that are not just wood as either ship timber or as the manufacturing materials for uh, shipping containers, so pipe staves and barrel staves, as they're called at the time, and to think about how those luxury markets uh, for particular kinds of woods or for dye woods that are going to be used in the cloth trade are also part of this story for how places are being linked together or not. And then to end the book, I wanted to look at one of the most important pieces of writing, uh, what's sometimes described as a foundational text, 
for English environmentalism, even today, uh, John Evelyn's Silva, in which he says, England is running out of woods, we have to do something. And he'll claim uh, at his most ambitious that within a few years, uncountable numbers of trees had been planted because his book had such a dramatic impact on the world. So I wanted to take that as a moment to say, okay, uh, coming about 80 years after my story starts, uh, close to a century in some ways after, after some of the first laws about wood scarcity in England, how have things changed? How has the relationship between England and its colonies changed uh, vis-a-vis wood? And the answer I come up with at the end is that in many ways, uh, there are deep continuities, even after a civil war, even after decades of colonial expansion, many of the problems that start the book remain by the end, despite quite a lot having happened on the ground. And so I try to tell this story that is about some deep continuities, uh, but that also investigates the ways in which a few things have changed on the ground over the course of several centuries. Thank you for that overall synopsis of the book, because I really think that that captures a lot of, of of what the book is trying to do in terms of how Wood really played a a, a role in um in in early modern Europe, and and I really like the way that you identify how wood or how the world is wooden, and and so many people are depending on on wood in so many different ways. And one interesting thing that that I noticed with um, Arthur, um, our, our author Standish, is the idea that um, he rejected overall the idea that population is the cause of of wood scarcity and how. Um, it was more of a political, cultural, policy-making thing. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, thanks so much. And and I think that's a really great point. Uh, population ends up being a key issue in a lot of the discussions that we have about colonial expansion in this early modern period. From the 16th century on, a lot of English thinkers are going to be really exercised by population questions Uh, Whether it's about domestic policies like enclosure at home, is that causing depopulation of areas? Uh, As people are moving to the cities in many cases, is that a problem in which you now have too many people? And the idea of colonies as a potential solution to this is going to be something that gets floated at some moments and then gets pulled back at other moments throughout the early modern period. What's intriguing about Standish and and what I think is important is that he's not going to say there's too many people and that's why all the woods have come down. Instead, Standish is going to identify wood scarcity as a problem of use and one that can be corrected through new techniques uh, in agriculture, new methods of designing estates and, and of regulating the landscape and through the enforcement of laws in some cases. And so the idea coming out of Standish, which is in many ways connected with a broader movement called improvement that is going to shape English agricultural writers, surveying writers, uh, everything from people writing about gardens to how you should manage your estate to everything in between, are going to say that things can be improved to meet the needs of a growing population through 
the application of particular techniques that are identified as best practices, uh, through the use of measurement, uh, through surveillance and monitoring on the part of landowners. And it's a, it's a diverse literature, but it's something that's really important to ideas about how agriculture should change and how land management should change. Uh, Standish is going to have ideas for how to make that work to reforest England. At the same time, he has a really diverse idea for everything that wood can do. Uh, right When he says no wood, no kingdom, he's not just thinking about ship timber. He's thinking about fuel in the form of firewood, but he's thinking about what household utensils are made of. He's thinking about what keeps coal mines stable, even as people are saying, well, maybe we could replace wood with coal and it won't be a problem. He said, well, you need trees to keep mines open and, and keep there from being cave-ins. He really conceives of early modern England as a wooden world. And as a result, he says, well, this is a serious problem that we can fix domestically. Um, but not everyone is going to agree with him. And so those fights about natural limits, about the relationship between population and environmental capacity, to put it in anachronistic terms, uh, these start to come into the debate as people are wondering, can England solve its own problem? Or does it need to look elsewhere? And when it looks elsewhere, what should that look like? Yeah, that's really interesting that you you bring up these kind of diverging ideas because it, it, throughout the book, there are these different interests that, that are competing with each other to both, I, I, I mean, I assume in one way they want to solve all of this, this, this whole crisis, but the other, they're, they're also driven by kind of a capitalistic imp imperative that, that they want to outcompete um with with each other and so i was i was wondering if you wanted to kind of talk about the the different views between you know standish and the virginia company or or, or maybe even build in the east india company yeah perfect so I, I think one of the key arguments i hope people will take from the book is that at the core of complaints about scarcity in england are a world of competing interests and not just competing interests, even within the same framework, but really competing political ecologies, competing visions for what resources are, how they should be managed, who should have access or use rights to them. And that there are moments here in which I think you could say, yeah, this feels a lot, you know, you use the word capitalistic. You can see joint stock companies like the Virginia company that are viewing this as a way to secure returns on investments or that the East India company will engage in activities to secure returns on investments. So we can say, oh, it's capitalism. Great. On the other hand, you have some interests that are being articulated and visions for how wood should be managed that are about state control over resources and about things we might call, you know, defense. So there are calls to manage the woods and to define either scarcity or abundance around what shipbuilders are doing uh, with the idea that those shipbuilders are going to protect England from invasion by ensuring that there are enough ships to fight off, uh, particularly after the Spanish Armada in 1588, a potential threat from the European continent. As we get down to the local level, you see 
articulations of competing political ecologies between use groups. So whether it is miners versus iron masters or people operating ironworks, uh, people who are using the woods to pasture animals versus ironworks or shipbuilders. And so we have, in terms of the competing interests, yeah, some of these are about competition and about an articulation of what we would see as either kind of capitalist or proto-capitalist ideas, particularly for things like the joint stock companies. On the other hand, we see local people who are trying to give a vision for how their world should work. We have people who are kind of bureaucrats and officials of the crown who have a vision for social harmony that they're going to articulate and that they're going to embed in a particular vision of the landscape. You know, they will see forests that are organized in particular ways as advancing a vision of social and political harmony uh, that they think should persist. You'll even have a few people who are going to make aesthetic claims for how landscapes should be managed that are going to feel a lot like modern environmentalism in a number of ways and saying like, well, it's beauty um, or something charismatic about a particular type of landscape that actually is something that we should value and that we should make decisions around. And all of these people are competing in terms of, is there a scarcity? Is there not scarcity? What does scarcity mean? So I hope one of the key takeaways from the book is going to be really looking at the the diversity and in some cases the incommensurability of the varying definitions of scarcity that are operating on the ground in England at this point in time. Yeah, that's a good point in terms of um, how how we how we really actually understand the the realities of of. Um, of the situation um, and, and how different people, people read not only the, the uh, material aspect of, of what, what we need wood for, but also how we perceive the landscape for our own, like for the aesthetic benefit. Um, and and I, I really want to talk more about that, especially getting into your, your case studies of, of Ireland um Virginia and Barbados. But before we do that, um, I just I, I would just like, could you quickly define for us what you mean by um, political ecology, just so everybody is all on the same page? Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, so by political ecology, I mean, the ways in which people are going to define the natural world to articulate what is and is not a resource within it, and then are going to begin to define rights, appropriate and inappropriate uses, and conditions for access within that world. So in a sense, the idea that what wood is, or what a woodland is, or what a forest is, that we can't view these as just sort of facts about the world. I mean, there are physical things there, right? There are physical trees. Um, There's a lot that is very real and physical there. But in part, what I try to do by using the concept of political ecology is to think about how people are imposing meaning on what they're encountering physically, and then how they're systematizing that into conditions that are going to define 
who should have access, what is and is not a resource, um, whose resources count and whose don't, uh, what kinds of political communities should make decisions about these things. And so really trying to take that. Does that help? No, that's that's perfect. And it actually segues right into to chapter two, I think, and and the the treatment of of Ireland's woods, um, where you have these different parties coming into Ireland and surveying and um, saying what what is waste and and what can be used for cultivation and and all of these different and complex legal contests. Would you just like to give a brief overview of that kind of case study, how you got into it and, and what the, the really important um, part of that in terms of like political ecology that, that you pulled out of? Yeah. The, the Ireland case is a really interesting one and it's an important one because chronologically you start having discussions about what to do with the landscape there in the 16th century so before some of the other places i look at uh, places like bermuda in terms of north america that there is overlap between people who are talking about wood in ireland and and also in what they call virginia but is north carolina but then also in the james river a little later on but ireland is floated from the 16th century onward as a place that might solve England's scarcity problem. And yet, just a few short decades after the first plantations that are the first colonies being put there that are are supposed to be part of the solution to that domestic problem in England are there, you have the person who's the chief English official in Ireland saying, well, we're out of trees. And For a long time, historians in Ireland and environmentalists in Ireland have tended to say the English came, they colonized us, they cut down all the trees, and it's a problem that exists to Ireland to this day, which is one of the least forested countries in the EU. At the same time, there are these issues where dendrochronologists, archaeologists, other other people have been trying to figure out when trees were in Ireland or not there saying, wait a second, some of these forests appear uh, from the evidence we have to have declined earlier than we expected. And the English sources in many cases are really inconsistent. They say like, oh, Ireland was just covered in trees. It was really rotten. We hated it there. And also then there's no trees or they say, oh, there's no trees, but we're operating ironworks in the place where we said there were no trees. So you have these sort of conflicting reports about exactly how many woods are in Ireland, what they look like, what the shape is. And so what I tried to do in this chapter is figure out where this conflict is coming from and, and what's behind this conflict. And that that's where taking the, the approach that I call in the book political ecology, uh, drawing on lots of other scholars who use political ecology, is to, to think about how politics and contests over defining and identifying and defining who has rights to a resource are at the core of this. Um, so that official... Uh, Sir Arthur Chichester, who is the chief English official in Ireland at that point in time, when he says there's no trees, he's going to clarify that that's because the state doesn't own trees because they've given them all away 
to English planters who they'd hoped would just give them to them at very low cost or at no cost because they might not be valuable. And then what they discovered is that, well, no, uh, the planters, the English planters who went to Ireland see woods there as quite valuable on their estates and are not willing to part with them to the crown at low or no cost uh, whenever the crown should ask for it. So in this case, rather than sort of immediate and rapid deforestation being at the core of the problem that's exercising these English officials, instead, it's the nature of the land grants that were part of the English colonial project there ended up sowing the seeds for later scarcity independent of what people were actually doing with trees. And so that is a way to get at this disjuncture we have in some cases between these dramatic tales of scarcity from English colonial officials and then some of the scientific evidence that doesn't necessarily line up with that vision that's being sketched out. And so once I get sort of establish what has happened where the state creates its own problems and then talks about scarcity. The question then is, okay, so what do people actually do on the ground? And so in the second half of that chapter, by focusing on Richard Boyle, who was the largest landowner in 17th century Ireland, and looking at his estate management practices, I try to think about, okay, how are woods being used what kinds of policies are in place at the level of an estate? And how is he trying to think about the preservation of something he views as a resource uh, while at the same time attempting to profit from it? And even there, we do see occasional moments that he's going to define as scarcity. Although even those often result from things like the imposition of stricter regulation from the Dublin government. Uh, fallings out with business partners, uh, conflicts with neighbors who despise him for a number of reasons and are no longer willing to trade with him or give him access to leases for woods. And so I hope what we can get out of that chapter is the way to see that cries of scarcity coming from contemporaries, both domestically in England, but also in a colonial situation are often bound up with these issues of property, of law, of access rights, and of use. And that's really interesting when we consider Virginia to, to try and conceptualize the property laws and the, the use laws there, because you, you, you demonstrate that um, they started out trying to produce things like silk pitch and tar in, in relation to wood, but then they, they moved to iron ironworks in the, uh, in the Virginia colony. So I, it, is there, what, what's the difference between being in Virginia and being in Ireland and, and trying to use wood in these two, two colonies? Yeah, I, that, that's a really great question. And, and I think it's something that contemporaries were trying to figure out at the time. <laughs> so people in various colonial projects were, aware of each other in many cases and trying to experiment with things that might work somewhere else to say, hey, maybe we could try this too. Uh, in many cases, they're all drawing on the same promotional literature of things that they think will be valuable and will make money and will satisfy investors. In Virginia, there are some ideas about the climate 
and about what types of things the environment there can produce that are going to lead to some differences with Ireland. So while there is occasionally talk of silkworks in Ireland, it's not nearly the same intensity that you get in Virginia. And in part, that's because uh, beliefs about climate and environmental capacity are going to shape that Virginia story. One of the big issues in Virginia is going to be the actual morphology of woods. So what a forested land or what a woodland looks like in Virginia. And as a result of forest management and hunting and other land use patterns uh, that native peoples in the area had engaged in for a long time, like burning, the shape of forests in Virginia is not going to look the way that certain Europeans coming over there want it to look. So, for example, with pitch and tar, uh, the English bring over people from Central and Eastern Europe who they hope are going to be experts at producing pitch and tar, which are, are used as naval stores because they've found some pines. And then they get told by these people that they've brought over, well, it's, there's not a density of pines in the way that we would want in order to produce pitch at, at commercially viable scales. Um, with silk making, they're using mulberries. Now, granted, um, the thing that they're identifying as the right mulberry here um, is not botanically identical to the mulberry that silkworms tend to like, um, but they think it should probably be okay. Even with those issues, a few of the people behind Silkworks are going to start to say, well, if this is going to be commercially viable, we'd need a greater density of these trees. Um, Even for things like manufacturing products like pipe and barrel staves, um, which are really useful in Ireland, there's issues of labor cost and of distance and scale that are going to make it difficult to do on the ground in Virginia. And then really the one of the huge issues that's facing the Virginia colony and that makes it different from Ireland is that there's a transatlantic voyage involved in shipping things from Virginia, whereas Ireland is bound up into multiple commercial networks. So for a place like Cork, uh, or Waterford or Yall, um, which are all pretty important ports in Southwest Ireland at this point in time, let alone places like say Dublin, um, they're going to be connected with Bristol and the West Country of England. There's going to be Dutch merchants going there all the time, which connects them to really rich and important continental trade networks. There's going to be Iberian fishermen off the coast. So even there, uh, small amounts of selling supplies can connect to other trade networks. Whereas Virginians are imagining that they're going to be engaging in more or less direct trade with a few English ports, and in many cases, mostly with London. So the the density of trade networks is going to have these important effects on how people are defining a viable woodlands at the same time, the shape of the woods in Virginia, it's going to look different than Ireland. And that's going to pose some unique problems. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That, yeah, that's the, identifying those trade networks and just the, 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 the length of time it would take to get over to, to England from Virginia really makes sense that it would be that much more challenging to, to be able to navigate these, these, these economic um, challenges as well as just making things work on, on the ground. And, and, and another thing that, that you, um, you come up with, and, and this includes Barbados as well, but I really think it stands out with, with Ireland and, and Virginia are not only that, that political, um, ecology of, of trade and, and, um, and, and, and economic progress, but also the, the just interaction with the spatial environment. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about how kind of going back to, to the aesthetics of, of the woods, how they saw these places as, as I guess, more wild and, and the woods themselves were kind of, kind of dangerous and how, how, how they culturally shaped the landscape. Yeah. and, And this is a really interesting thing because there is this sort of trope that the English look at wooded spaces and say, oh, there's an association there with incivility, with barbarism, uh, with savagery, these words that they'll occasionally throw out for these places and for people in them. And that's occasionally true. Uh, A lot of writing about Ireland is going to emphasize that rebels hide out in the woods where they engage in all sorts of things that the English find very rotten and threatening, and that maybe deforesting the country is the solution. And a lot of this is sort of the most dramatic uh, kind of anti-Irish writing that's being produced. In Virginia, uh, after 1622, and the Anglo-Powhatan War is kicked off uh, with a dramatic attack on the English colonies in response to the kidnapping uh, and attempted forced conversion of native children. There's going to be sort of the recycling of tropes about threatening woods uh, in Virginia that echo some of the same tropes that are used to describe Ireland. And in Virginia, there's going to be a call in one clay in one case for a war on the forest with the idea that by destroying woods, you can destroy the threatening people within those woods at the same time. So quite literally a war against the landscape as part of a broader attempt to impose English colonial domination um, in these two places. So they, they draw on this example that woods may be frightening places. 
And so that's something that I think a lot of people studying colonialism have sort of picked up in various ways that colonists show up and say, the existing landscape is frightening or bad. We should transform it in some way uh, to make it useful and good to us. Okay. And that, that's a key part of the story that I draw out in a number of places. What was interesting and surprising in the research is, is the degree to which that was not universally the case. Um, so in Barbados, Richard Ligon, who's going to write a, a history of the island, writes lovingly about woods there, writes about the diversity of trees. It's not just all functional. He's going to express aesthetic admiration uh, for the wooded landscapes of Barbados. In Bermuda, you will have people who write uh, about functional use, but people who also seem to be clearly thinking about wooded lands as there's something appealing. Um, In England, you have people who are going to talk about the value of woods as being beautiful in some ways. And I think the key to remember there is that it's not just the demonization of woods that leads to deforestation where that occurs. Ligon says that Barbados's woods are, are beautiful and they're useful, and yet they all need to come down in order to make money, right? So you have this development of an aesthetic vision for some of these landscapes. You have calls to preserve, to behave in, in ways we might call sustainable, or at least sort of a proto version of sustainability or a forerunner of sustainability. And yet, these visions are still ultimately driven by ensuring English uses, ensuring English dominance, ensuring profit for certain English people or for a joint stock company for an individual landowner. Um, I hope that one of the things that thinking about not just fear, but the beauty will get out of the book is the sense that these people have a, a vision of preservation and of careful and judicious use of resources that they bring to colonies with them. It's just that those things can coincide with slavery, with colonial dominance, with land seizure, uh, with violent war, with the idea of completely and totally extirpating people from the lands that they have held for a long, long time. Um, and so it's it's not as though sort of sustainability comes and then sort of everything is good, but rather that uh, it can coexist with a colonial vision for what to do to these lands. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's so interesting um, in terms of looking at Bermuda and, and particularly the, the Bermuda cedar, where, where you talk about how it's both like this commercial crop, but it's also, it serves as a wind fence for crops against the like tropical weather. So I, I, Bermuda was such an interesting case study to me because it, it, it seems like it's, it's very much out of left field. And, and even you, you talk about how you, you had some issues with, with, with the record keeping of, of that colony compared to, compared to your Virginia and, um, Ireland cases. Would you would you like to just talk more about Bermuda itself? Yeah. So Bermuda is this really interesting example because it, it's very easy for it to fall out of our vision for what England's early period of colonial expansion looks like. 
right? The North American colonies tend to get a lot of headlines and, and, and we think about them, particularly those of us in the U.S., they're often viewed as the sort of origin point for how we're going to tell the story of, of later U.S. history. But if you're thinking from the perspective of people in London in the early decades of the 17th century, Bermuda looks in some ways like a better bet than Virginia, in particular after some of the dramatic events of what's called the starving time in Virginia. Uh, a number of colonists who end up spending time in both Bermuda and Virginia uh, because there's significant overlap in the colonial companies that administer them both. And indeed, uh, the first settlers in Bermuda are going to be coming under the auspices of the Virginia company. A number of them would say that they would prefer Bermuda uh, over Virginia because it's more successful. What's interesting about Bermuda is it's not being envisioned as a place that's going to solve England's scarcity problem. And nonetheless, it's a place in which wood is going to be really important for colonial development there and for the shape of English colonialism there. Uh, So the Bermuda cedar, which you mentioned, is something that's going to be really important. It's a luxury product in a number of cases. So it's going to be seen as something that has the capacity to resist rot. And so it'll be used in some furniture making and in the crafting of boxes and things like that. Uh, some of these are very large trees that are going to be used uh, for construction projects, uh, even for shipbuilding in a number of cases later on. And so even in a small place that is not seen as sort of solving England's problem, uh, managing woods is still a key part of the story. What's interesting about Bermuda is that there's feedbacks that happen pretty quickly in which English colonists realize that they can create problems through cutting down trees. And so they'll get worried about wind in in particular. They encounter a number of intense tropical winds that they say have blasted their crops. They use this word blasting over and over again uh, to describe moments in which they're starting to get nervous that they too may starve like their Virginian compatriots. And they recognize that woods help to prevent that. But then there's going to be lots of debates about, well, what trees should we have? Uh, and there will be debates about the natural capacity of the of the island uh, to deliver profit. Can you plant things like the cedars or like the Bermuda palmetto, um, which is going to be another important tree for the book as well? Can trees have value if they ensure agricultural productivity or only if they're export products? Uh, should we value fruit trees versus trees that provide lots of other resources for local construction, things like that? And there's huge debates on the island, uh, at times quite contentious ones that are going to have these really widespread ramifications. And so even in a place that is not necessarily part of these big uh, sort of macroeconomic commercial nexuses like Virginia and Ireland are, Wood is still going to be a key part of the story for how those colonies develop. Yeah, that's super interesting. And 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 just to kind of um, to wrap up our conversation, just just going off of that, um, I want to take us back to to John Evelyn and and Silva and 
and and which is a which is a Royal Society publication. And one thing that you mentioned about that is that um, within within this discourse, if I understood it right, um, these colonies are not are not necessarily a part of they're they're the the english wooden world um and so i don't know i was just hoping you might want to want to kind of finish off talking about how this reverts back to to england and and it becomes an english problem again and then maybe even about kind of how authority shifts between um between author standish and then to to john um john evelyn yeah uh, thank you for that. Really having Standish and Evelyn in conversation with each other, it's one of the things I hope for in the book. So thank you for, <laughs> for making that comparison. <laughs> really, it's always nice to, to hear when something lands, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> as I think about the two in conversation, uh, Standish, who's going to claim that the king has endorsed him, and, and indeed he'll, he'll get a, a, a somewhat tepid royal endorsement saying, yes, uh, this is a good pamphlet. People should plant more trees. Evelyn is, is bound up with the Royal Society. And so in some ways with, with big state science of the restoration, uh, what, what prompts the text, according to his, his diary, is going to be that he's asked questions from Peter Pett, uh, who is a, a shipbuilder, about what the king should do about woods and how to preserve woods. So there's a way in which now, rather than an individual sort of coming to the state and saying, or coming to the crown and saying, hey, we have this problem, please do something about it, endorse my pamphlet. Here you have the crown coming to the Royal Society and saying, hey, we have this problem, what should we do about it? What's intriguing is how much things have stayed the same to a certain degree. So Evelyn, who is very uh, confident in the transformational nature of his book, is going to say, essentially, no one has said anything about wood before me. Uh, So to a degree, people like Arthur Standish just sort of disappear in Evelyn's story about himself, uh, which he, he knows better, but this is promoting his own work. He's also going to advance this idea that wood scarcity is a domestic problem in England. Uh, So when he talks about other places, Ireland is maybe a source of one interesting tree. Virginia is a source of maybe an interesting tree, but it is not a place to sort of seriously consider as a way to solve England's problem. The only colonial outpost that he's going to treat as a potential solution is the new is the New England colonies. And so it's only at the end of this book that New England jumps into my story. And and that's quite deliberate because again, I think a lot of the earlier writing that exists on on wood and the Atlantic world and the way that colonies factor in is going to focus on New England and with good reason because it's going to become a really important part of the story for timber trade in the Atlantic for shipbuilding uh, as we move on in the 17th century and then into the 18th century. But sitting in 1660 and looking at it from John Evelyn's perspective, New England is important, but it's not necessary, right? He's going to keep moving back and forth on, on 
why New England might even be a part of this story at all. In some cases, he says, well, New England's woods will be sacrificed so England's can be preserved. But then he'll go back and say, well, we can fix this domestically. We don't need to rely on a colony. Indeed, if we even bring them into the wood market, maybe it's to help them in their colonial project rather than because we need it. He really wants for there to be domestic solutions to this problem, much like Standish, who say, we don't need to look abroad. We can solve this at home. What's intriguing about this is that a lot has happened between Standish and Evelyn. Um, you know, Evelyn's going to say, oh, Virginia doesn't matter at all. Um the governor of Virginia, who is in contact with one of Evelyn's correspondents, uh, John Beale, is going to be working on ideas for maybe producing naval stores, is going to be lobbying the crown to see if he can get exceptions to, to weave Virginia into a transatlantic wood trade. So there are attempts to make this work. There are contemporaries in England who think Virginia might work. Evelyn is not going to focus on that and is instead going to look at New England. Uh, the idea that there might be a wooden world without England at its center is not something Evelyn can consider. And I think that's one of the key takeaways from the end of the book. Barbados is going to become really important in the story for why wood begins to work in the way it does for places like New England, but also for places like Virginia, um, even for how Bermuda is going to interact with the rest of the world. A place like Barbados is going to begin to see Atlantic trade networks as something that will enable it to abandon some of the earlier preservation measures that I found preserved in in property records from the first decades of English colonialism on the island. And that's an important part of the story and an important point to take away. Uh, It's not scarcity that drives these networks. Uh, To a degree, it's the networks that help to create, in some cases, uh, landscape transformations. And in particular, it's the development of intercolonial trade with places in the Caribbean, with Barbados in particular, that's going to start to add value to woods that earlier colonists had tried desperately to make valuable in England, but had often failed. Uh, so the colonies themselves and intercolonial trade become such a key part of the story for where we start to see change. Because if you set Standish and Evelyn besides each other, uh, despite Evelyn saying, oh, who cares about Arthur Standish? It can almost appear static over many decades in the way that some writers will say, this is a domestic problem that we can solve domestically. So really trying to balance that domestic stasis against the changes that happen in the colonies is, I hope, one of the ways that the ending of the book will open up some space for other scholars uh, to ask new questions as well. Yeah, that's great. I hope it does too. And, and maybe we can have those scholars on when they, when they write their book inspired by your work. Um, <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Well, well, Keith, we've taken up so much of your time, but thank you so much for for being on uh, on the show. This was a this was a really interesting topic, and and I'm I'm glad you were able to uh, to 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 write this book. It, it's super interesting. But um, before we go, I would like to ask you um, our our traditional final new books network question: What are you working on now? So 
since finishing this book, I've gone in a slightly different direction. I've jumped time and I've jumped place a bit. I'm looking at the creation of urban waterworks and ideas about climate. And in particular, my new project is, is centering around this proposal from Benjamin Henry Latrobe in 1798 to create a supply of wholesome water for the city of Philadelphia using steam engines. But in addition to supplying water, he also has this vision that he'll believe in for about six months before he repudiates it, that he is going to alter the climate and cool the air uh, through the miraculous power of steam. So I'm thinking about ideas of the Anthropocene, uh, the fantasies associated with steam power, and the ways in which municipal infrastructure like water and the development of cities is bound up alongside things like manufacturing cloth with how we end up in a fossil fuel economy. Well, that sounds so interesting, and I'm I'm excited to to read it when you're uh, when when you're done with the research. So, um, well, thank you again so much for um, for being on, and I hope you have a great day. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. This was really a great conversation, and I I very much appreciate uh, how much you engaged with the book. It, it was such a nice thing. Well, of course. All right. Well, have a good day. You too.